Today on Basic, the author of Up All Night, Ted Turner, CNN, and the Rise of 24-Hour News, Lisa Napoli. Ted Turner, he was this wild, larger-than-life playboy, yachtsman, visionary. He got into news completely by accident. Ted Turner didn't care that much about news. When CNN started, it was such a revolution, but Fox came along, they had a point of view, and that forced CNN to figure out what they were going to be. Hello, everyone, and welcome to Basic, the official podcast of the unofficial history of cable television. I'm Doug Herzog, former TV exec, and this is CNN. And I'm Jen Cheney, TV critic for Vulture and New York Magazine. And I'm also Wolf Blitzer, coming to you live from the Situation Room. <laughs> hey, Jen, it's hard to imagine a world without 24-hour news channels. But prior to 1981, there wasn't such a thing. That was until Ted Turner came along with his then revolutionary and controversial idea for round-the-clock news. As you know, Ted Turner was brilliant, complicated, problematic, and a television visionary of sorts. His story, as well as CNN's, are part of the true foundation of cable television. And our guest today, author Lisa Napoli, will take us behind the scenes of Ted's creation of CNN and the 24-hour news channels that changed everything. Stay tuned after the interview. We'll be back in the Situation Room to break it all down. Lisa Napoli, welcome to Basic. We're going to start off with a question we ask everybody when they join us, which is, do you remember when you first got cable television? I don't, but I do remember the first time I heard about cable and when I got involved with cable, which was very, very early on in cable's existence. Right. Well, to that point, you worked at CNN at one point. Can you tell us a little bit about what you did there and how you came on board? Sure. So it was 1981. I was 17 years old in Brooklyn, New York, where I grew up. We didn't have cable. We had read about cable and my parents were very excited about it. My father in particular couldn't wait to be able to get HBO because he was a movie nut. And I was standing on the Plaza, Newkirk Plaza subway platform, and I ran into a high school buddy of mine. I was in college, summer of my first year of college, and he said, there's this cool thing happening in the World Trade Center where I have an internship in finance. He was wearing a suit. And he said, you might want to check it out because I know you're into the news business, this thing called Cable News Network. And I hadn't heard of Cable News Network, but that sounded interesting to me. And I went and called 555-1212 information for anybody old enough who remembers that that's how you used to get phone numbers. And I called them and they said, come on in, we need people. And so I went in and I was dazzled by the place, but I didn't really understand cable or basic cable or, well, that's all there was then. I didn't really understand what I was stepping into at that point, just that it was very exotic for a kid from Brooklyn. I'm not sure anybody really did back in those days. Who was to know what was to become of cable? But, you know, the story of CNN and to a certain degree, I think basic cable in general starts with Ted Turner. Could you remind our listeners a little bit about, you know, Ted and his origins? Sure. I think Ted Turner, if anybody understood it, maybe Jerry Levin, he he saw that there was potential there. Of course, no one could possibly have known. Ted Turner was uh, had inherited a billboard company from his father. He had bought radio stations because he thought billboards were boring, even though they enabled a very indulgent lifestyle for him as a young man. And then just when he was getting into radio and not really excited about it, he got into UHF television. And he bought a little junky left for dead, what they called on the lunatic fringe of broadcasting, a UHF station in Atlanta where he was based. 
And it was a few years into that that he understood that cable was coming in and cable was becoming married to satellite. And he saw that potential. I can talk so much more about all the many steps in between that got to that point. But he was a visionary, a media visionary at a time when you know people didn't really call people that. He saw the potential for new technologies in a way that very few other people did. Well, and he was also kind of an eccentric, multifaceted human being, and I'm I'm assuming still is. Um, You know, in your book, Up All Night, this made me laugh out loud. You wrote, one classmate observed with incredulity that despite his basic racist tendencies, his chauvinistic approach to women, his elitist view of society, and his fascist political ideology, Ted was likable. (laughs) (laughs) Which is like kind of a fascinating summary of a human being, but it sounds like from everything you wrote, that's kind of a the mixed bag that he was. Yes. And there's much video and film evidence of his personality back then. He's ill today. He's still alive. But back then, he was this wild, larger-than-life playboy, yachtsman, woman chaser, visionary. His personality was multidimensional, and he was just arrogant and crazy enough to believe that he could take on the three broadcast networks. And when he started thinking that way, it wasn't exactly clear how. And when he heard about cable married to satellite, he realized, ah, yeah, maybe that's the way to do it. It's so hard. I love talking about this book and I love talking about Ted and I really hope this book gets made into a movie, but it's so hard to distill all the multifaceted pieces of this puzzle and of Ted's personality. So I'm sure you're going to ask me more great questions about that. But yes, he was, he would have been me too'd off the stage in about five seconds if he existed today. Well, Lisa, you and I both share something in that we both work for CNN. I think for both of us, it was our first jobs in the media. Certainly was for me. I was coming right out of college. You were, you were still in high school, a little younger. Did you ever encounter Ted in the New York Bureau? I did a couple of times and, you know, he was, Kind of a, what's the word? I'm not even sure what the word I want to use, but he was he was uh, an amusing individual to be around. The problem with Ted is there is no one word that does him justice, and it, it, yeah, it's just spectacular. No, I when I I worked in New York for two summers and one summer in D.C. When I graduated from school, the logical place to go was to the mothership in Atlanta, and I worked at that time for Headline News, which was on the other side of this old country club that CNN had reclaimed. It was left for dead in the middle of Midtown Atlanta, which by that point was a terrible, terrible place. And in that country club, Ted had erected, so to speak, an apartment at the top of it of the country club uh, adjacent to his office because he was in between wives very often. He was not at this time married to Jane Fonda. It was not even in his imagination that he would be married to Jane Fonda. And so he often slept at the country club and we all worked overnights because that was a rite of passage at CNN, especially in Atlanta. And we might go out for a break in the back, you know, on this patio adjacent to this old converted building. And Ted would lean out the window and say, yo, what are you doing? Or we would go out in the middle of the night to go to the bathroom, which we had 30 seconds to do. And he'd be sitting in the break room in a robe. I never saw him with a woman, but other people saw him 
in robes. One one famous story is he was sitting there with Raquel Welch, and you'd be darting out to pee as fast as you could because there was no time for a real break. And he'd be sitting there with a cup of coffee and a newspaper wanting to chat you up. Hey, what's up today? What's going on? So he was very congenial. Those are benign stories compared to the ones that the ad salespeople tell, et cetera, the, the ball players. But yes, he was definitely a presence. He was definitely around. Fun to be around either way. Yes. So you do a good job of setting this up in your book, but for people, especially young people who do not remember what it was like in a pre-24 hour news cycle situation, try to set the scene because you couldn't just get information anytime you pleased. It was set times and it came from network TV, radio, or newspapers. And that was kind of it. It's so hard for anybody, even those of us who remember it, who were there, to remember that there was a time when you couldn't get information instantaneously and when you couldn't do what we're doing now, which is talking over communications lines that are available to everyone. It's shocking. But yes, when CNN started, it was such a revolution, not only because people could only get broadcast news on television from those three networks and to an extent from local stations, but also because nobody thought anybody cared enough about news to watch any more of it than just a few minutes of it at night at dinner time. It was really an eat your vegetables proposition. You had to watch the news to be a good citizen. If you wanted real news, you read the newspaper. And uh, even Ted Turner didn't care that much about news. Well, let's dive into the Ted not caring about news a little bit, because really the story of CNN starts with that UHF channel, Channel 17 in Atlanta, where Ted famously did not want to do news, right? Right. That was what was so interesting about the birth of CNN, is that it wasn't some grand vision to fill the airwaves with propaganda. It was basically an opportunistic play to find a way to take this UHF station that he had and pump it out on what was then basic cable. This is with a station that became WTBS. And then he was so drunk with power, if you will, about that, about being able to float this junky television station around the Southeast and then around the whole country that he decided he wanted to do something else with this technology. And he sat around with his guys, his, you know, his money guys, and they were all guys, and they brainstormed. And somebody said, let's do music on television, which I know you know all about. Doug and, and and someone said nobody would ever watch music on television and and somebody said what about movies and HBO was brewing and Ted had all these movies on his UHF station but that seemed to cannibalize his core business as did doing sports so that's when somebody said let's do news and Ted said I hate news I don't watch the news I don't care about the news and besides all the news is biased anyway but he wound up choosing news for his first cable original venture because it was the easiest thing to produce which of course is ludicrous to say now because it's very hard to produce well but yes so he got into news completely by accident Hello, Pantheon Podcast listeners. Christian Swain here to tell you more about my experience with Raycon earbuds. Our family now has three pairs of Raycon earbuds around the house. And my wife just grabbed a pair of the headphone pros to replace some headphones from a company that was double the price. And yes, she loves them. Now, if you haven't pulled the trigger on a pair of Raycons, or even if you have, but you're in the market for another pair because they're just that good, well, now is the time to check them out because they just launched their upgraded model of the best-selling everyday earbuds. 
with Raycon's upgraded everyday earbuds, now you also get active noise cancellation, ergonomic design, and multi-point connectivity that lets you pair with two devices at once. New quick charge function, three customizable sound styles plus awareness mode. Available in a variety of vibrant new colors to complement any and all skin tones. I even have a pair of earbuds in a cool green color. I have tried just about every earbud known to humankind, and these Raycons are fantastic. Seriously, if you've been wanting to check out Raycons, there truly is no better time. You're going to ask yourself why you didn't check them out sooner, and Raycon offers a 30-day happiness guarantee. So what are you waiting for? Go to buyraycon.com slash pantheon today to get 20% off your Raycon order, plus free shipping. That's right. You'll get 20% off and free shipping at buyraycon.com slash pantheon. Buyraycon.com slash pantheon. Hey folks, Stefan Shirazi and Renee Richardson here from the Metallica Report. And we are proud members of the Pantheon podcast family, where the best of music and podcasts unite. We've got something pretty cool for you. We're giving away an exclusive Metallica merch package worth over $250. That's a whole lot of scary guys, skulls, M72, and other sought-after Metallica swag. And we've made it easy for you to win. Follow and share the Metallica Report, and you're in the game. Go to pantheonpodcast.com slash Metallica, enter your email, and hit that button to be entered to win. And just like that, you're eligible for our monthly exclusive Metallica merch package. And guess what, rockers? You can enter every month. So just do it. And while we love our global brothers and sisters, the lawyers won't let us ship outside the U.S. One of his earliest innovations was, you know, going back to Channel 17 was running that network 24 hours a day because, again, you know, there was a day when every television station signed off at 2 a.m. or 3 a.m., whatever it was, and would go dark until the next morning. And I think Ted was kind of an innovator in deciding, well, why not have it on all night? People are up. People have different lifestyles. And I can sell that. Exactly. And that's what it went back to. It wasn't a content thing. It was basically he was a born salesman. He didn't want to see a billboard without something on it. So he'd put on a promotion for his television or radio stations. And that was the same thing with the airtime. He thought that that was really absurd that a station would turn itself off at night. Why would you eliminate that period as a potential sales vehicle? And he knew himself that he was an insomniac and that when he woke up in the middle of the night, he wanted to look at something. But yes, people who are younger, again, people any age, probably forget that TV used to power down. When I first went to the Kingdom of Bhutan about 12 years ago, I used to actually like watching the sign off and the sign on in the morning. It was so quaint. And even though it was in a different language, it reminded me of being a kid. There was something charming about it, but it was a dumb business decision to have that dead airtime. And Ted took care of that. Yes. I mean, there are so many things in this story that you see a direct line from then to now. And just you talking about that just made me think about the famous sort of way that they were pitching Netflix is like, who's your competitor? And it's sleep. It's not everybody else. It's just sleep. (laughs) Well, Ray Kroc always said, you know, he wasn't selling hamburgers. He was selling real estate. And Ted was real estate uh, in, in the sense of the virtual real estate. But yeah, it's fascinating. He was such an innovator, such a pioneer. And 
I'm always so happy to talk about him because I think a lot of people don't remember that. He's been caught up in this buffoonery with, you know, Jane Fonda and politics and what cable news has become. But as wild as a man as he was, and people did not take him seriously when he was shopping a news channel because he seemed like the absolute last person to do news. News was so somber and serious and suited. And Ted was just, you know, publicly drunk and womanizing and and getting lost at sea. And the idea that he could do this eat your vegetables kind of programming was unthinkable to a lot of people. They took it that seriously. Yeah, he was very audacious just to come at this, both with Channel 17, which became the Superstation, and then ultimately TBS, which we all know today. He wanted to compete with the networks, the networks. It's hard to remember a time when it was just the networks. It was ABC, NBC, CBS, that was it. And they were held in very high regard. And the fact that anybody could compete with them was seen as silly or outrageous. And then then he goes after them with a 24-hour news network, which at these networks, all three of them, news was held even in the highest regard because it was important and it was journalism and it was informational and it wasn't some goofy primetime show. And Ted decided to come after them at both points. It was a nuisance, though. News was always, it wasn't sexy in any single way. It was really an obligation on the part of the networks that sort of infringed on the stuff that made oodles of money, which, of course, is what funded the news. And that was interesting to remember, too. I remember as a young woman reading about that and understanding that then. But I'd forgotten that. And I'd also forgotten that with Channel 17, his little UHF station in Atlanta, which basically he ran a bunch of movies on and then he bought the Braves to populate some more of the airtime, he had this obligation, this FCC obligation to run at least a little bit of news or public service. And he held news in such low regard that he allowed basically this wild ragtag group of people who ran the station to just put together this early version of The Daily Show, basically. And Bill Tush, who was the station announcer, was the guy sort of nominated to put on a suit and sit behind a desk that they cobbled together in a closet. And basically, he became the first on-air presence on Channel 17. And when Channel 17 was floated out on the cable airwaves and people started watching in the middle of the night, which is where they stuck the newscast because they didn't want to waste it on anything more valuable, people actually watched and they started writing in and saying that they loved this guy. And once they got that it was a joke, a jokey newscast, they loved it even more. Bill Tush was, he was maybe Cable's first star, right? I always hate to say absolutely, but pretty much absolutely he was Cable's first star. And he was a big star in tiny places that had cable originally before cable got floated up to the satellite. So it was, yeah, fascinating. He went on to have a sketch show at TBS that Jan Hooks starred in, Jan Hooks of SNL fame. And I also think Bonnie and the Turners, right, from 30 Rock and SNL also wrote on that show. And he became a star. And, you know, full disclosure, I worked for Bill Tush at CNN in probably 1983. Ted took him out to L.A. at one point to host a celebrity talk show, which unfortunately did not last long. But he really was Cable's first sort of homegrown star. He was. And Ted was incredibly loyal and and very loyal to Bill and had told him early on, as long as I have a job, you'll have a job. And that was true. Up until, you know, early 2000s, Bill was on the air at CNN. Yeah. Yeah, I think he did last as long as Ted lasted. He did. He did. 
Yeah. yeah. So given all the obstacles that you've mentioned, obviously Ted not being necessarily taken totally seriously, the fact that 24-hour news seemed like a strange proposition, how did Ted Turner go about selling this to cable operators? Like, how did he persuade people that this was the thing that they should get on the ground with? Well, the other thing that's impossible for people to remember is that there were only about 18 million homes in 1980 that had cable, and cable operation was very mom and pop. I don't, Doug may remember exactly how many operators there were, but there were, you know, hundreds of them. And so selling to cable operators was a different proposition than it became. Also, out of the gate, only something like 1.2 million, a small fraction of the small fraction of homes that had the possibility of cable actually agreed to take CNN when it first launched, because again, nobody believed that anybody cared about news, and they certainly didn't believe that Ted Turner can do it. And so it was very slow out of the gate. He got a pharmaceutical company as an advertiser out of the gate in the very beginning on the promise of numbers that they couldn't deliver. But it was all very experimental. Everybody who joined on in the beginning was really taking a huge risk. Of course, as the 80s marched on, as they progressed, and as news events occurred that made people primed to be interested in 24-hour news, more advertisers came in. But people who worked there in the very early days, and I don't know if, Doug, you remember this, they would say that they'd be working the floor at CNN, and they would see the same damned Zampier pan flute commercial dial in and buy. You know. Well, here, here's the truth about cable television. If you watch a lot of it today, you're going to see a lot of the same commercials same even, even now. But, you know, back to Ted, he was an amazing sales guy, right? I mean, that was part, he's a great promotion man. And those cable operators, while there were some big time people involved early on, there were also a lot of really small time operators out in the suburbs and the sticks, places where you couldn't get great reception. And I think Ted did a great job selling himself and selling CNN into them. I worked at the New York Times in the early days of the internet, and it was this strange fraternity, sorority of people. I'm sure it's the same thing with Bitcoin and NFTs today. People who get a technology before everybody else does. So Ted was a god, if only because he would go to these cable conventions and, and speak to the converted about the power of cable television. So they loved that he was so enthusiastic and giving them something to make it more than just the utility that it was when it started out. That is cable that I'm talking about. But yes, he was as dynamic a salesman as he was a lover and wild man. And so he would jump on people's desks and say all kinds of crazy things to convince them about sales and make up all sorts of facts and figures that people who watched cable were smarter and that had no basis in real fact at that time. But he was a born salesman and he really did believe in what he was selling. So it was uh, just hearing the stories of people who witnessed that back then on that side of things, on the sales side of things, he really was a hero. Can you talk a little bit about the editorial approach at CNN in the early days? Because it sounds very different from what we think of as CNN now, because they were programming news, but they would set aside time to do entertainment news and sports and cover things from a feature side. So it was like a broad spectrum of things. And now that doesn't really happen as much. In fact, I kind of wish it did, but talk a little bit about that. Sure. No, that's a great question. And another thing I could say it a million times, we forget that when CNN launched, not only was it unusual for there to be 24-hour news, 
or that people would be, you know, any interest in news. But the fact that there was only one all news channel, until you have competition, you have a whole different attitude toward your business than you do once somebody else comes along and does exactly the same thing that you do. And really, the initial people at CNN were terrified about how they were going to fill 24-hour news because they said, we're going to have to set buildings on fire to create news. What is news? Over the years, slowly but surely, of course, news has has been redefined with that 24-7 capability. But when CNN launched, it really was a constant experiment. And really, they were constantly waiting for something big to happen to talk about. Now, everybody fills the time with people screaming at each other from different political points of view. But then that was relegated to one hour a day, and that was extremely unusual. But they invented fashion news. They invented really in some ways sports news, even though ESPN was there, they were creating this whole concept of a nightly sports show. I could tell you we were doing entertainment news before Entertainment Tonight. Yeah. Uh, yeah. In a way that Entertainment Tonight started off doing. Yeah, exactly. No, and financial news, same thing. People didn't cover financial news. Now everybody knows this, the Dow numbers on their iPhone, I mean, their watch. But that concept of talking about business news every single night like that was just incredible. Even weather. I mean, the idea of weather being more than just a blip on your evening news was remarkable. So they covered the base. It's really important to point out, too, that Reese Schoenfeld was the first president of CNN. And his vision, having worked in other kinds of news, not the broadcast networks, before he came to CNN was that news was going to unfold before your very eyes, that it wouldn't be packaged up by someone delivered by Walter Cronkite at dinnertime, but that it would be this unfolding story. And that's, of course, what it became for better and for much, 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 much worse, obviously. The speculation and the craziness that goes on now is absolutely not what they imagined in the very beginning. This is a, a random aside, but didn't you also say in the book that they would have people do farm reports? Yeah. <laughs> Which is crazy to me. It is crazy. I was like, who was this, Les Nessman? Like, what, who was doing farm reports on CNN? Well, actually, somebody who became a big star at CNN, and that's the other thing. We'll get back to the star thing later. There weren't stars in the beginning. It, the people who went to work there who were on the air were seen as a little bit crazy or desperate or both. Or unemployable. Or unemployable, or like us, right out of school, and you pay me a dollar, I'll do anything. But the people on the air, like uh, John Holloman, who did the farm reports, was the AP's farm reporter. His job was, you know, we don't know that living in the big cities that in the country there is actually such a thing as the AP farm report. And this sweet guy, kind of chubby, was hired to do all kinds of different things. But one of the things was they grew a garden in the swimming pool out back of the country club that Ted Turner had reclaimed for CNN. And they tried to grow crops as a way for this man, John Holloman, to illustrate his farm report. And John Holloman, some people may remember, became super famous, not just because he was an excellent reporter, but he covered NASA. And then he also covered Baghdad. He was one of the boys in Baghdad later in the decade. So it was a really strange mashup of people who were willing to take that risk and try different things. And literally one minute, they might do one kind of show and then kill it and do another kind of show and it might work. So it was a really wonderful place for experimentation. CNN was now seen, certainly compared to Fox, 
a more liberal network, maybe not quite as liberal as, say, MSNBC. But back then, they had a lot of conservative contributors and reporters, and it seemed like more of a mix and more of a balance than we have today. Well, people forget, if they knew it all, that Ted Turner himself was a conservative when he launched CNN. He wasn't an overly political person the way Roger Ailes was. But when CNN launched, news was a completely different universe then. You would never talk about your personal beliefs at work on the air. I mean, you might talk about it over a beer afterwards, but it was sort of a very non-star driven, non-politically driven affair, news in general. And then what happened, of course, is when the minute that MSNBC and Fox came along, which was at the same time, basically 16 years into CNN's existence, as CNN was chugging along and riding the wave of news events and barely you know, making it. It was propped up so many times financially. That's a whole other conversation. But in 1996, when these two other players came along and Fox came along with this very decided point of view, when MSNBC came along, I worked there, not in the very beginning, but a couple of years in, it was not about liberal politics. It was about technology. It was about fusing MSNBC with MSNBC.com, which at the time was revolutionary that you'd have a cable channel with an internet piece. But Fox came along. We all know what happened with Fox and their crazy proclamation that we report, you decide, or whatever their tagline is. But they had a point of view. And that forced the competition, CNN, and MSNBC to figure out what they were going to be. And of course, they, at the hands of Zucker, decided what they were going to be was the counterpart to Fox. But people forget that. People are in the now and remember what's happening now. It was not that way for 16 years. Yes, there were people, my father was conservative. He thought that CNN was more conservative than something else, but he thought Walter Cronkite and Dan Rather were conservative, were, were liberal too. But it was not the way it is now where it's espousing a point of view. And they have to do that because otherwise they'd go out of business in about a second because nobody's going to watch them unless there's a point of view and people are screaming. And by the way, that's how newspapers were back before there was broadcasting. There might be eight newspapers in a big city and you would read the one that espoused the point of view that you favored. And that's where we are now with cable. It's a shame, and that's why I don't watch it, because I don't want anybody telling me any of that stuff. I'd rather read my news. I'm (laughs) old-fashioned. Well, in terms of kind of some watershed moments for CNN, I mean, you you talk about a few in the book that really exemplified how crucial it was to be able to do immediate ongoing coverage. And one of the first ones you talked about, I believe, is the attempted assassination of Ronald Reagan, which... (laughs) This is so terrible to say, but one of the things I remember about it is the SNL skit where they kept showing the same, the buckwheat (laughs) getting assassinated or almost assassinated, showing the same, here we have it again, let's look at it from another angle. And I feel like some of that must have been inspired by CNN, although the networks replayed it a lot too. But can you talk a little bit about that? Wow, I've never seen that parody. Really? Really? No, how could I have missed that? I'm so serious. Well, I used to watch Saturday Night Live. I have to check that out. But I did watch every single frame of CNN's coverage of the 1981 shooting in writing this book. And I have to tell you, it's really fascinating to look at it and to look at the networks too, because you could see evidence in 1981. This is just not even a year after CNN launched that the president was shot. CNN wasn't in the White House pool. Nobody took it seriously. So they had to steal 
steal the footage from the White House pool of the assassination attempt, which aired over and over again. And CNN went on the air and was not quick to make proclamations about what was going on because Bernard Shaw was an unerringly responsible reporter. And you can see even evidence then of it starting to shift how the networks treated news. Now, of course, the networks would go on the air in a second if you know anybody blips, but, but then they wouldn't because that wasn't their role. But in answer to your question, and I write a lot about that in the book, I really do think it's a fascinating moment in time, especially when you look at Kennedy's assassination and how that was covered. But other milestones, in 1985, I was in the newsroom when the show challenger exploded. And I couldn't, that's what drove me out of the news business because it took me a long time to get out of it. The whole idea that you would replay the picture of that explosion over and over and over again was sick. And there was a big controversy about that. Now, of course, unfortunately, 9-11, they did for a while and then they stopped showing the towers crumbling. But the sense of repetition and just no sense of integrity toward what you're actually watching on the screen was really startling, even in the mid-80s. Then there was that little girl in a well. I was going to say, before you get started, you know, Jen and I, in kind of conjuring up the idea for this podcast, mm-hmm. we talk a lot about trying to revisit Cable's milestone moments, right? And so things like Live Aid, and many people point to CNN's coverage of the Gulf War as the moment where they sort of broke through in a big way in terms of national consciousness. But you end your book with an event that happened, as you just mentioned, in 1985, which is Baby Jesco, which I believe is the moment, and I think you might as well because you wrote it, where CNN came of age. So could you remind our listeners about the Baby Jessica affair? Yes. Yes. So in 1987, a little girl fell into a well in Midland, Texas. And because they could, and because it was a great human interest story, at another moment in time, it might not have been considered news, and it might not have been coverable the way it was with satellite trucks, etc. They pulled up the truck and they followed it until the moment the little girl was removed from the well. It was an incredible human interest story. Was it news? There were big fights among the executives at CNN about it. Played out over many, many hours, right? Oh, yeah. I think it was, I can't remember off the top of my head. It was 72 hours. It was several days at least. And it just, it went on and on and on. And even the networks would go back to it occasionally. And at the end, they were all there too, watching the final moments of it, which were quite stirring and dramatic. But it really did cause an existential crisis for a lot of people because that would not be considered news to many hardcore journalists. And that got CNN its biggest ratings. Now, the problem with the question of how did CNN get on the map is that in 1981, there were still not very many people wired for cable, much less wired for CNN. So by the time the shuttle Challenger exploded, there were more people. It's the evolution of the medium, which is why it's such an exciting story, because as CNN was evolving, cable was evolving, and it was taking over the world. And CNN was taking over the world. CNN was not international in the beginning. By the time Baghdad came along, they had started to make deals to run CNN internationally. And so that allowed people all around the world to watch the war 
be in that hotel room with the guys as the explosions were happening. Tiananmen Square was another instance of just wild, no one could believe that they were seeing these troops march in, the protesters, all the things that they were seeing that we take so for granted now that we can turn on and see anything, any moment. But then it was just remarkable to be able to do that. And, and CNN did that and did it really well and trained us all the way we all learned how to text message. You know, we never knew what text messaging was a few years ago, and now we can't live without it. It trained everyone to be a universe of news junkies. To go back to baby Jessica for just a second, I thought it was so interesting that you opened your book with a story about Kathy Fiscus, I think I'm pronouncing her name correctly, who was a three-year-old child who also fell in a well, but this was in 1949, <laughs> and how that sparked enormous media interest at the time. And I, I did not know that story. And so to have that parallelism with baby Jessica was just fascinating to me. Well, I'm so glad you liked it. And I have to say that I think that what I found so fascinating about writing this book, I've been working for the last 40 years, is it forced me to look at all of the suppositions that we have and all the anger we have about where the news media is at today, because I have a lot of anger about what's happened to it. And the truth is, it's human nature. All these things have been happening for decades. Like I said, the newspapers had points of view. In 49, there was this terrible human interest story of a little girl in a well, and a news director's impulse was, how can I figure out how to show that to people? And he did. He was very talented, and it was rudimentary, and there weren't very many people watching TV in LA at the time, but he managed to get that signal up. And guess what? People were standing in the windows of appliance stores as TV was being rolled out around the nation. Most people didn't have it, but they could watch it on the, you know, on the demo model in the appliance store where the guy was smart enough to leave it turned on at night. So our impulse is we want to watch, we want to see other people, we want to go other places just from the comfort of our own screens. And I love that story juxtaposed with what in the 80s was CNN's biggest moment was the other well story. Everything old is new again or some cliche like that. Well, right. I was just going to say, I mean, so much of this story is about how everything they were doing was brand new. But then there's this point that nothing is totally brand new. Like some of these instincts have been around forever. Well, it's sexy probably to your audience and to us that it was technology. The story really is a technology story. It's the capability of doing it that allowed the same impulses to manifest differently just because there was videotape. I mean, right. think about it, videotape, what a revolution. It's right. incredible. Well, technology combined with vision, right? And the vision in this case was Ted Turner. Do you think a guy like Ted Turner could exist and or succeed in 2022? <laughs> well, it, it, with his personality, absolutely not, right? I mean, oh my God, imagine you as an executive, if you did any one of those things that he did, forget it. I, you know, I don't know that we have the modern visionaries. You know, those of us who've covered the internet for a long time, watched Bezos go from books to Bezos, you know, to, to the heavens. But, you know, I, I don't think that anybody's quite like Ted, but that's not fair to say because there are people who are taking risks. They're probably taking risks with things that we just don't see. Gas pipelines or something like that. I, I'm sure batteries, I, right, I'm sure right. out there, but he's singular. Boy, he is completely unique. I think I know how you're going to answer this question, Lisa, but I want to pose it to you anyway. <laughs> Do you think that CNN and 24-hour news has been good or bad for all of us? And that's a complicated question, so I don't think it's necessarily all good or all bad, but I'm curious what your take is on that. 
that's uh, yeah you could ask me the same question about tv generally or phones or airplanes right roads <laughs> the original technology you know or wheels I think it is very hard. I can't say definitively. I wouldn't say definitively either way. And maybe that's because I have covered technology for so long and I do see the good and the bad in it. I hate what we've gone through in the last few years, not just the pandemic, but the political polarization that television has become. It's news has become entertainment. It's not news as some of us were brought up to think of it. And that's, you know, good and bad too, because news was so marginalized before. I just, it opened up so many questions and concerns. And what I wish is that we talked about them more. I wish we taught kids how to watch television and say, that's ridiculous that's not real, that's a point of view, that's a news report. But the truth is, you know, there really is inherent bias in every news report, just because you and I would report the same exact thing differently. The difference is that we used to be trained with similar tools about the tone and the tenor of a news report. And now the tone and tenor of a news report is, I'm wearing an evening gown and I'm screaming at you. And that's a gross generalization because there are people doing amazing work out there, but it gets overshadowed by the polarization and the screaming that are necessary for ratings. So that's a long-winded way of saying I can't answer. We're going to end on a slightly lighter note, Lisa, which is, do you have an all-time favorite basic cable show? I mean, I was a huge MTV fan. What was your favorite MTV show? It's been so long. See, I should have prepared. Especially- <laughs> no, it's okay. But I was a huge MTV fan. I loved just, it. Just big MTV? I just had it on. You know, that was the whole point. Yeah. Just watching the videos. Yeah, it just kept going. Were you a big Duran Duran fan, like my co-host Jen Janey? <laughs> I liked Jen so much until I found that out. No. Hey! <laughs> <laughs> no, you know, the 80s, the hair, we, what could we do? It wasn't our fault. We were all just there, right? I love Tabitha Soren. I don't, I don't know. I can't even remember now. It's been so long. And I'm so serious. Yeah. All right. Well, Lisa, we appreciate you, A, being here, and B, moving around your mother's house to find a nice quiet spot. <laughs> it's a little hot, so I'm going to go have a drink now. But... I was going to say, no windows in the closet. Yeah, a little steamy. <laughs> Not here in Florida. There might be a hurricane and blow us all away. Thanks for making time for us. We appreciate yeah, it. Yeah, thank you, Lisa. So that was a really educational, fascinating conversation with Lisa. I'm especially interested in anybody who doesn't remember when CNN launched or wasn't alive yet how they will respond to all of this. Because I just think it's fascinating history. It is fascinating. It's really hard sometimes to take your mind back to a time when there was no cable television. There was only the broadcast networks and something like 24-hour news sounded like a dumb idea. Right. And we didn't really talk about this, but in Lisa's book, she talks about they did go out to some very high-profile names to try to get somebody who was already an established star on CNN from the get-go, and everybody turned them down. Like, I think Dan Rather didn't want to do it. I think it was like Geraldo Rivera, and then before she was a big deal, Oprah was even in the mix. Oh, is that true? It's in the book. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Oh, Oprah, wow. I don't know yeah. if they ever formally asked her or not. They may have, like, ruled her out because they thought she was too green to uh, be on CNN, this brand-new network. And that being said, they actually did ultimately engage with some talent that actually became pretty big time. Sure. Both on CNN and, and other places. You know, everybody from Bernard Shaw to Robin Leach, for instance, started on uh, on CNN. They had an eye for talent and were willing to take chances in a lot of different ways. From a personal standpoint, so much of this transition from the old news way to the cable news way just 
I feel like it was echoed again when the internet came along and all these legacy newsrooms in which I worked tried to incorporate the internet and there was just so much backlash and constant turmoil about stuff that is so dumb that also should be a limited series, by the way. Maybe I should write that one. That'll be the compliment to Lisa's TV show. Yeah, I mean, it just even though all of this is like forward thinking and revolutionary, there's also that element of like history repeats itself in, in different ways. Yeah, always, always. And then, of course, there's the Ted Turner of it all a charismatic, problematic guy, but a real visionary. And I think, you know, really one of the true godfathers of cable television. You know, uh, she mentioned it briefly, but when CNN launched in June of 1980, I think Ted had just been on the cover of Time Magazine for winning the America's Cup, which is a sailing race. And that's really what he was best known for at the time. He wasn't known as a businessman necessarily. He wasn't known as a media executive. He was known as Captain Courageous, the guy who won the America's Cup in true swashbuckling style. Mm -hmm. Well, if there's a quality you ever look for in the head of a newsroom, it's someone who can sail a boat. <laughs> but it actually makes sense to me in a weird way that he, as she talked about, he inherited this billboard business and that's what he was doing at first. But what it, what is... The ticker on CNN, if not just a constant billboard. I mean, it kind of comes full circle. Exactly. Yeah. And, and you know, you hear he was always tortured by, you know, an empty billboard. And that's what kind of led him to going 24 hours because he never wanted his video billboard, as it were, to be empty. And then the fact that, you know, at first when he got into broadcasting, he couldn't be less interested in news. And then in kind of like a light bulb moment, decided that was going to be his path is mm -hmm. sort of crazy. And I, not to be too hyperbolic about it, but when you think about it, I just feel like the beginning of 24-hour news was the beginning of stress in our culture. <laughs> <laughs> I'm serious. I mean, obviously, it, it slowly compounded and the internet pushed it all the way to the edge and has continued to do so. But like the idea that you can't turn off is now what we live right. with. Yeah. Well, the 24 hours of it all, I think, is to a certain degree what kind of built cable, right? Mm -hmm. You know, you had CNN was 24 hours, sort of round the clock. MTV was round the clock. ESPN was round the clock. And the cable networks at their height, they almost became like utilities, right? When you'd move into a new house or apartment, the first thing you would do is you turn on the water, get the phone going, get the electricity going, and get the cable going. Right. Right. They were these 24 hour utilities that really began to shape our lives in a lot of ways. Right. And I mean, technically, the radio was on all the time. Like that was always on. They never turned off the radio. That's true. That's I don't true. know. It didn't set the same kind of precedent of like, I'm going to miss something if I'm not paying attention at all hours of the day. <laughs> right. And also radio, it's still here, by the way, and still going strong. Well, strong. Well, they're still here. It's still going. So that's, you know, that's to their credit. I always, I always make jokes that radio is still here, folks. But I think you know, radio did not play as big a role when you were home, right? Radio was something for the car, mostly something you would, you know, maybe drag out into your backyard if you were doing something fun and you wanted some music. But, you know, in the home, I think, you know, TV had quickly become the dominant entertainment vehicle. Right. And when it went 24 hours, a whole new world opened up. Right. I mean, and that's a good point. The TV was always on. And I think CNN, and I don't mean this in a bad way, but I think it's become one of those default channels. Like, what would we be looking at in airports if there were no CNN? I don't know. <laughs> <laughs> right. What do you do at an airport bar if it's not at CNN or, or some soccer game on ESPN that you're not interested in? <laughs> well, again, those are billboards in their own way. And that's I think that goes back to uh, to Ted's genius. Forget about CNN. It's hard to imagine a world, no matter what you watch, without a 24-hour news channel. Yeah, absolutely. Thanks for joining us. And uh, we hope you come back next time on BASIC. See you next time. 
Basic is a Pantheon Media production in partnership with Sirius XM. Hosted by Jen Chaney and Doug Herzog. Produced by Christian Swain and Peter Ferrioli. Lindley Ehrlich is our assistant producer. Mixed, mastered, and music by Jerry Danielson. Edited by Zach Spisner. You can find Basic on Apple Podcasts, the SiriusXM app, Pandora, Stitcher, or wherever you like to listen. If you like the show, please rate, review, and share so other people can find us. Don't, Don't forget, forget to follow, follow the show, show so you never, never miss an episode. It's NFL draft season, and that means it's time to start thinking about fantasy football. FantasyPoints.com features industry-leading experts and prognosticators using proprietary hand-charted data to help you score more fantasy points. FantasyPoints.com is the place to go for whatever kind of fantasy football you play. Whether you play fantasy football, daily fantasy sports, or do a little bit of everything, Fantasy Points has the meticulously researched content to guide you to victory. And why wait for the fall? Fantasy Points also covers the new spring football league, the UFL. Join the guru, John Hansen, Scott Barrett, Joe Dolan, and other massive names in the fantasy football universe with an exclusive offer. Use code Pantheon for 15% off any Fantasy Points package, including the all-in package, with access to every article, tool, and data nugget that Fantasy Points has to offer. That's FantasyPoints.com and code Pantheon for 15% off at Fantasy Points. FantasyPoints.com, code Pantheon. Score more Fantasy Points. Fantasy Points.